So we're in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. As is so often the case when you read some of these historical books, the background, the perspective is super helpful. So just a quick recap. Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and, and really they were just a ragtag group of ex-slaves. We read the account of them. They're afraid. They're complaining. They're not sure if they can trust Moses. They get to Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, everything changes for the tribes of Israel. Here, Yahweh meets with Moses. He renews the covenant that he had made with Abraham. He establishes these 12 disheveled tribes into a nation. They receive the Ten Commandments. They receive the 613 laws that define the covenant, that establish the order. And and what happens there at Mount Sinai is they get a criminal justice system, a health code, dietary regulations, labor laws. They, They get agricultural practices, a system for caring for the underprivileged, rules of engagement for war. And they are turned into a nation. God, through Moses, establishes a regimented system for these nomadic tribes to organize themselves, to camp and travel together. They enlist men to fight in their military. What happens at Mount Sinai is revolutionary. It it is unheard of in the ancient Near East, what God does through Israel. And perhaps most importantly to what God does there at Mount Sinai, central to their new identity as a nation, as God's chosen people, is that Yahweh defines and establishes clear religious practices for them, expectations for worship. And different from every other nation, tribe, and culture around them, Israel has no idols. They have no graven images, no statues to worship. Instead, the center of their worship is the tabernacle. We have this picture here of the tabernacle, this massive tent that they carried through the wilderness to the promised land, 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high, was a wood frame covered in gold that they had taken from Egypt, covered with animal hides and ornate curtains of blue and purple and scarlet. It was surrounded by a courtyard. We have another picture of this big courtyard that surrounded The tabernacle where they would have come in the middle of the courtyard was the bronze altar where they would have made all of their animal sacrifices. Within the tabernacle of all these different elements of worship, each of them covered in gold or bronze. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, would have been the centerpiece of the element. We have that that picture as well of the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the Holy of Holies. That inner chamber in the, the Ark of the Covenant were two tablets of the Ten Commandments. The presence of God would dwell there. There were were altars, there was a table, there was a basin all covered in bronze and gold, these precious elements that would have been beautiful. And these these guys are carrying this through the wilderness, through the desert. The Lord lays out for Moses and the people there at Mount Sinai five different types of sacrifices that were to be made there at the tabernacle. The daily burnt offering was made every morning and every night. A bull was sacrificed to worship and to atone for sin. There were grain offerings, a voluntary offering of thanksgiving. There was a peace offering that, would, that was represented your fellowship with God. It was the only offering where you would come and, and make a sacrifice and you got to eat some of the meat, sharing fellowship with God. There were sin offerings and guilt offerings. Both were mandatory offerings of of animal sacrifices to atone for specific sins. In addition to that, God laid out for them a precise calendar of feasts and festivals. Seven different festivals throughout the Mosaic system. A weekly Sabbath, a weekly day of rest, a monthly festival of the new moon. And then there were five annual festivals. The Passover, celebrating their redemption from Egypt. The festival of first fruits, where they would dedicate their harvest A festival of trumpets, an opportunity for the people to gather and to call out to God. The festival of booths, a a chance to give 
thanksgiving, and then, of course, the Day of Atonement, that one day that, where they would come together in a special way and atone for sins. All of this was overseen by the tribe of Levi, right? The tribe of Levi was dedicated to God for service. They were exempt from military service because of all of, all of their tasks at the tabernacle. You may remember that the tribe of Levi does not inherit any portion of the promised land. Rather, they're assigned 48 different cities to live, spread out amongst all of the rest of the 12 tribes, serving as religious leaders. They would come and serve at the tabernacle on a rotating basis. Now, from the tribe of Levi, a select few served as priests. The descendants of Aaron, who was a Levite, Moses' brother, His sons served as priests in the tabernacle, offering sacrifices, leading festivals of worship. The high priest, you can see here on the the picture, wore this elaborate garb that essentially matched the tabernacle. This this beautiful, stunning um, purple and and blue apron and and breast piece and and, and gold uh, garnishes and, and 12 jewels and a turban. This is what the high priest would wear. The rest of the Levites didn't directly offer sacrifices, but the rest of the tribe of Levi would serve, and they essentially had three functions in the tabernacle. First of all, they were assistants to the priests. The rest of the tribe of Levi were were their personal assistants, personal aides in the, the worship services, the festivals, in the sacrifices. Secondly, the rest of the tribe of Levi would set up and carry and maintain the tabernacle. They were the ones that carried it, that set it up, that took care of it, that repaired it if it got damaged. Thirdly, the Levites served as security guards. They were a security force around the tabernacle, protecting it, making sure that nobody got in that was not authorized. And so the tribe of Levi is set aside for these special purposes. Now listen, hear me. If you've read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and you've read about all of, all of these things I've just described, the, the, the Levites and their duties and, and the tabernacle and the elements and the sacrifices and the, and the, the worship and the festivals. Listen, there, are, there may be boring parts of the Bible, but I have to tell you, th- this is not a boring part of the Bible. This is a beautiful, amazing. I mean, just, just think for a minute about God revealing this, describing it, construct the Israelites constructing what was revolutionary. It's stunning. It reveals the wisdom of God, the care of God, the glory of God. I, I think I would have loved worshiping in this system, this beautiful, symbolic system that, that ultimately the tabernacle, the priests, the sacrifices all looked forward to and, and foreshadowed Christ, foreshadowed heavenly realities, this tangible demonstration that we have the privilege of worshiping God, but that humanity needs atonement for sacrifice. This beautiful, glorious system. And as we now dive into Judges 17 and 18, remember, all of that is in the background. right? The people of God and Judges that have walked away from Him, that have given into sin, they have all of this beautiful, elaborate system that God has given them. And we're going to meet a man today... And then we're going to meet an entire tribe. And they look at all of this beautiful, elaborate, organized expression of worship that God has given them. And this man we're going to meet today and and an entire tribe of God's people, they look at all of it and they say this. They're like, we don't want it. We don't want anything to do with what God, Yahweh, has given us. And we're not going to participate in the sacrifices and, and we're not going to give tithes to support the Levites. And we're not going to honor the festivals and they, and they disregard it all. And what we'll read about this morning in Judges 17 and 18 is not a group of people that, that decide to, to worship false gods. They're not worshiping Baal or Dagon or the Asheroth. They attempt to continue to worship 
their covenant God, Yahweh, but they completely disregard the system that God had given them to do that. And they try to essentially invent their own religion. Now we've seen in the book of Judges, again and again, God sends deliverers, God sends judges. But, but this week and next week, as we wrap up our series in these last five chapters, we read about no more judges. God's not going to send anyone to redeem them and rescue them. What we're seeing here in the end of the book of Judges is the result of their downward spiral, the tragic end of their unfaithfulness. We're going to get an in-depth look at what life would have been like in this period of the Judges when everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. This is what happens when you just do what you want. This is what life ends up. And we're going to read this refrain four times in these last chapters that I've mentioned to you again and again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the theme for the next two weeks. Next week, we'll look more closely at the idea that there was no king in Israel and what the king would have done and what the king in the anticipation was as, as later in the history of Israel, a king is set in. But for this morning, we're just going to focus on this idea that left to themselves, the people of Israel just simply do whatever seems right to them. And we'll see that they ignore God's plan and his expectations and and living how they want, doing what's right in their eyes leads to, as you see in your bulletin, leads to them building their own religion, creating their own blessing, and ultimately trying to make their own way. So I'm going to read now the first six verses of Judges 17. And we meet a man named Micah. Let's see what he does. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son of the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man... Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So Micah steals silver from his mom. Okay, then she curses the person who stole her silver, not knowing it was her son. And he then gets nervous, confesses, returns the money. Right? She's so thankful, she decides to dedicate the silver to Yahweh. Now, this sounds like a nice story, except that the way she's going to dedicate the silver to Yahweh is by giving it to the silversmith to make her a couple of idols, a couple of carved images. And we think, wait a minute, have you never heard of the second commandment, first commandment, no other gods before me? The second commandment is don't make any carved images. Don't make any idols to facilitate your worship of the one true God. Her, her son Micah then takes the idol he ordains his, his son, gives him a priestly robe, and he sets up a shrine, a house of God, with these new idols, with these new household gods. What, what is he doing? He's got false gods, a false tabernacle, a false priest, a false robe. He's setting up a false religion in his own house. Now why? Why would Micah and his mom do this? 
Why would they do this? We're, we're told. The book of Judges tells us in verse 6, there was no king, there was nobody to set authority to monitor the practices of the people, and so everyone just did whatever was right in their own eyes. They did what they wanted. And, and this seemed good to Micah and his family. Now again, what's interesting is that it doesn't indicate that Micah's worshiping a false god. They think they're doing this to worship the God of Israel. But they're doing it in a false way. Completely dismissing the beautiful, elaborate, meaningful system of the tabernacle that I had described for you earlier. He's disregarding that and building a religion that seems to suit his own needs. Cutting himself off from the rest of the nation of Israel. No longer worshiping alongside of his brothers and sisters. No longer accessing the true means of worship and the festivals and the, the sacrifices of atonement. How arrogant. How selfish. How, how entitled and rebellious this man is. How ungrateful for all that Yahweh had done for his people. Now let's step back for a minute. Why, why were carved images, why were graven images forbidden in Israel? I mean, it seems like it would be helpful right? Here, here's, the, here's the deal. God knew that no matter how beautiful, no matter how stunning, you could carve a metal or, or, or form a metal image or carve a wooden image. It would never adequately reflect the God of heaven and earth, right? You're always going to leave some part of God out if you try to represent him in a physical, visible form. If you try to make an image that's really strong and powerful, guess what? You've downplayed his love and his tenderness. If you try to make an image that's soft and gentle, well, you're left out his power and his strength. There's no way to put the God of heaven and earth into a physical form that you can look, see, or touch. Any attempt to do that undermines God, but it also undermines the one true reflection of God. Because in Genesis, we're told that humanity was created in the image of God, male and female. We are the only thing that could even begin to reflect God in His glory. Humanity, male and female, we represent the one true God. Of course, we don't worship one another. We worship in spirit and in truth. We worship without a physical representation. The tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant... The, the, the basins, the, the, the priests were not meant to be worshipped. They were meant to facilitate worship of the one true God. So why do Micah and his mom make these graven images? Why do they set up this false religion? Why is it, was it so appealing to have little idols that they could hold and touch? Four reasons I, I want to present to you. First is, is, is just assimilation. Having statues and idols that you could look at, see, and touch was just an accepted part of every tribe, every culture around them. They were just giving in and assimilating to what everybody else around them had. Secondly, I think they wanted God to be tangible. Don't you want God to be tangible sometimes? Don't you wish you could see him, talk to him, look at him in the way that you look at your spouse? It's hard to worship a, a, an invisible, eternal, spiritual God. They wanted to make God defined. Here, here's, here's a little image that we just made out of silver now we can see god feel god touch god thirdly i think they wanted god to be personalized they wanted a religion that was personalized that fit their needs right how does judges describe these gods they're their household gods right no longer just the national god of israel now we have our own household gods right we can worship now the way we want it's personalized it fits our needs fourthly i think it just was convenient at this point in history to worship Yahweh, to participate in the seven festivals, to participate in the sacrifices of atonement, you had to travel to the tabernacle. 
And for those five annual festivals, the people would come and gather. At this point in history, the tabernacle was set up in Shiloh. Now here's the pathetic thing about Micah. Shiloh was a city in Ephraim. Micah's from the tribe of Ephraim. He, he lives as close to the tabernacle as anybody in, in the nation of Israel could. And it was still too inconvenient for him. Oh, I'm not going to bother to travel all the way down to Shiloh. I've got a little shrine set up in my own house. He has built his own religion. Friends, listen. We are created to be worshipers. We all worship something. Even secular atheists have a supreme entity that they put in the center of their life whether it's a person, a concept, an ideology, something that, is, that their life is centered upon. And so, of course, of course, people in the world are going to create their own gods, their own religions. It's the only way that they have to fulfill this inner God, Godward need to worship. And so they're going to make something else to worship. But this story is not about the foreign tribes around Israel. It's about an Israelite. Living in the promised land. What does that mean? It means these practices of false worship can creep into the people of God as well. Anytime we decide to disregard God, to do what seems right to us, to act upon our urges, we are susceptible to this. And you may be an active part of the church. You may call Jesus Savior. Yet are there ways that you've subtly adapted your religion to suit your own needs? Do we at times remake God in our own image? with what suits us, with our own ideas. And I think you look at those four reasons that I think led Micah. We can look at assimilation, right? We feel the pressure, the need to assimilate in the workplace culture, in the culture of, of, of the world around us. And what do we do? We, we, we keep quiet. That's what you're supposed to do with strongly held religious convictions. You keep quiet about them. We feel the need to assimilate, which means we have to affirm everybody else's practices, right? Not just give room and it's not enough that we just don't ostracize people. We have to affirm any and everybody's practices, their perspectives. What does it mean to assimilate in, in 21st century America? It means that you're religious. Excuse me, you're spiritual, but you're not religious, right? You can be spiritual, but don't be radical. And I would submit to you that to follow Jesus is, is in fact radical. And so we, we, we tend to, to give in to the desire to assimilate. I think we also want to make God tangible. We want to make our Christian experience tangible. And we might, may not have a carved image, but maybe we have a picture of Jesus. And when we're feeling discouraged or downtrodden, we, you know, we pull out this little picture and it, it gives us hope or it stirs our faith or it gives us something to focus on in our prayers. You know, crosses for generations have been central to, to, to Christianity and to Christian worship. I have a wooden cross that hangs on my wall and a, and a dear brother, a dear friend, traveled to Israel, got a, a little wooden cross carved from, from wood there found in, in Israel, brought it back to me, and it's precious to me. I, I love it. I have it on my wall in my office, and I turn and look at it. Do you know what I think about when I look at it? I think about this, this man who brought this to me, and I pray for him. But if I turn to that little wooden cross, and if I focus on it, if I pray to it, if I use it to stimulate my faith, I've, in essence, tried to make a, a spiritual, eternal, invisible God into something tangible, right? Maybe you, you have some rosary beads from your childhood. You say, well, I left the Catholic faith, but I, I still love to hold those things when I pray. It, it, it gives me something tangible to focus on outside of what the Scriptures call us to. I think we want our faith to be personalized, with these household gods like Micah had, and you may not go that far, but maybe there's sections of the Bible 
Or maybe there are certain attributes of God that you rely on. And you say, I'm only going to think about, you know, his love or his wisdom or his mercy. I'm only going to read these sections of the New Testament. And, and you focus on those things and you're making your faith personalized. Or maybe there are certain standards of holiness or certain doctrines. Will you discount them? They're too difficult. A God that I want to serve wouldn't teach those things, right? Wouldn't call me to those things. I can't live that way. I can't believe those things. So I'll put them aside. I'm not going to publicly denounce them. But in practice, you discount them and create a personalized religion. Maybe for you, your Christianity has been formed into something that is convenient, okay? Something that is, is convenient, and, and you, you only look to the essentials, right? Everybody in here, as far as I can tell, is wearing a pair of pants. Maybe some of you have a skirt on. But not everybody has jewelry, right? And I think for many of us, our Christianity has just become those convenient accessories, Right? things that we, we put on to make us look good, feel good. There are aspects of our faith that become just extras, accessories. And for you, maybe Bible reading, maybe accountability to the church or, or weekly worship in community is like a colorful necklace. It's, it's a nice accessory, but it's not essential. If it's convenient for me to read my Bible, if it's convenient for me to dedicate myself to the local church or to participate in, in weekly corporate worship, then I'll do it. But it's not essential. There are other things in life that are more essential. And again and again, people will say to me, you know, well, I'm struggling in my faith. Are you praying and reading the Word, I ask? Well, I pray every day, but I, I haven't been in the Word much. It's, it's, a, it's not convenient, and so it's not done. Friends, do we feel the need to assimilate to make our Christian experience tangible and personalized and convenient. If we are not careful, we end up trying to worship the true God in a false way, an entirely new religious system that seems right to us, seems good, seems appropriate, seems to fit our needs, but, but in essence it's no different from carving an idol and setting up a shrine. Paul reminds us in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 that we have turned from idols. We have this scripture. We've turned from idols to serve the living and true God. We wait for the Son from heaven, whom God has raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Friends, let's serve the living God, the true God, not these idols, not these false expressions of worship, not giving in to our own desires and the culture around us. See, as you begin to live that's right in your own life, you, in essence, could lead yourself into just building your own religion. But we're going to see next that Micah, I think, creates his own blessing. Pick up with me back in Judges 17, verse 7, where we see Micah creating his own blessing. Look at what happens in the story. Now, there was a man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothing and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons, and Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. So all that background I told you about at the beginning, it's all coming, becoming relevant, isn't it? 
So this Levite shows up. Okay, he's from the tribe of Levi. He's previously been living in Bethlehem in Judea, but now he's wandering around looking for a place to live. Reading between the lines, he's looking for work. The Levites were supposed to make their sustenance through gifts and offerings that were given to the tabernacle. I think it's likely at this point in history, many of the tribes of Israel had stopped doing that, and the Levites need a way to provide them for themselves. So this young guy is wandering around looking for work, looking for a place to settle. We find out at the end of chapter 18 that he is a descendant of Moses. His name is Jonathan, we find out in chapter 18. Isn't that sad? Generations later, this is one of Moses' grandsons walking around as a priest for hire. As it's been said before, there are no grandchildren in the kingdom. This guy is not in a right place because he's a descendant of Moses. He's looking for work. Micah jumps at the chance. Micah jumps at the chance to have a Levite lead this new religion that he's set up. And so he invites Jonathan to stay with him. And Micah pushes his own son right out of the priesthood, says, you're not going to run the religion anymore. I've got a Levite now, right? And he's all excited. And he ordains him. He gives him an annual salary, a place to live, the priestly robe. And we find out in verse 13 why Micah is so excited to have this Levite. He says in verse 13, now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest, right? God's going to be good to me. God's going to bless me because I have one of these spiritual people from Israel. This, this anointed tribe of, of, of Levi is now leading my new household religion. See, somehow in the midst of Micah stealing money from his mom, using his mom's false idols, creating his own religion, he still somehow thinks that he can have God's favor. Isn't that interesting? He thinks that somehow Yahweh is going to be good to him and prosper him because he's got this token priest. Like, like somehow having a Levite is, is a little you know, good luck charm or magic token. He's manipulating Jonathan, the young Levite. He's twisting the purposes of God. Yes, the Levites were intentionally spread out across the nation of Israel. As religious leaders, spiritual advisors, they served as worship leaders, teachers of the Torah. But they weren't household priests for hire. That wasn't what God had intended. But Micah somehow thinks that he now deserves God's blessing. Look at me. But all that he's done is build his own religion, and now he's created his own standard and said, if I meet this standard, which is have a Levite, then God will bless me. It made all the sense in the world to Micah. It was right in his own eyes, but not in God's eyes. He, he created his own blessing, saying, God, if I do this, if I have a Levite, then you'll bless me, then you'll prosper me. Guys, how often do we fall into the same trap? We do what we want, we do what seems right to us, and then we presume somehow we're still going to get God's favor. We think, well, if I do this, if I do that, if I act just this way, if I acquire this amount of money or reach this success in my job, if I get this person's approval in my life, if I'm recognized for this in the church, if I do these types of religious expressions and works, then God will be good to me. And we have these little goals and these standards that if we have this and reach this, then God will have no choice but to bless me and prosper me. And it makes sense to us, but not to God. I recently heard a testimony of a woman in our church who was raised in a Christian home, lived as a young woman, as a teen, as a young adult for God. She saved herself for marriage, kept herself pure, from romantic relationships, getting physical. But she reached a point in her life where she said, I've done all of this, I've played by all the rules, but what has it gotten me? 
And she shared this testimony and how she felt like she had jumped through all the right hoops, but she still didn't have abundant life. She still didn't have anything to, to quote-unquote show for it. She didn't have the life that she felt that she deserved, even though she had done everything she thought was asked of her. And so you know what this woman did as a, as a, as a woman in her early 20s? She said, I'm just going to do it my own way. And she, she still went to church. She still went to church on Sundays, but she lived her own way. She said she got a job. She worked hard. She excelled in her career. She made lots of money. She partied. But after years of this, she just found that she was even more empty than when she had began. And she shared that she had always understood that she was saved by grace. She thought that grace is what got her to God. But it wasn't until she understood that, that living the daily life was also by grace. It wasn't until she understood that grace is not just what gives us forgiveness and brings us into God's kingdom, but grace is what enables us to live Every single day with the Lord. It's not about us jumping through hoops or doing the right things or checking off the right boxes. And when she understood that the grace of God is what she needed to fill her for every single day, she, she found a new freedom, a new peace, and a new joy that she had been yearning for for years. And no longer was it, God, I've done X, Y, and Z. Why don't I have the abundant life I think I deserve? Now it was, God, you've been so gracious. And now you're giving me peace and joy and prosperity. Not you're blessed, not, now you're blessing me not because of what I think I've been doing in the church, but because of what you've graciously poured out to me in Christ. Friends, we walk in obedience not to earn God's favor, but we walk in obedience because we have God's favor through Christ. Amen? See, false religions that man creates say this. If I do things just the right way, God will be forced to approve of me. Then he will have to give me what I want. And that seems right to us. But that's false religion. True religion. True religion that's grounded in the gospel of grace says God has accomplished all that I require. God has freely given me all that I need because of his love and his grace. Guys, God's blessing and favor comes by His grace, not because of our works, not because we jump through the right hoops, not because you set up a certain standard, a certain expectation. Look, God, I did what I set out to do. Titus 3, 5, and 6 celebrates the goodness and the grace of God. That when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Micah in this story thinks that he has a token and thinks that this token will secure God's favor. Discounting the grace of God. Discounting the covenant of God. And we're about to find out in chapter 18 that he is sorely mistaken. Having a Levite as a priest is not going to protect him. Not going to prosper him. I'm going to tell you the story of, of chapter 18 and we'll read some bits of it. Bits of it. Verse 1 in chapter 18 says this. In those days there was no king in Israel. We just read that a few Verses earlier, right? But the, the author of Judges is making a point. In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So here's what's happened. We read in the book of Joshua that after the tribes came into Israel, 
Each of them was allotted a portion of the promised land. Dan had been given a specific portion of land, but Dan had been unable to drive out the Canaanites and to establish themselves in that section of the territory. They couldn't push out the Amorites. Instead, the Amorites pushed them, we're we're told in chapter 1 of Judges, into the hill country. So rather than dwell in the plains where you could prosper and grow crops and, and have grazing ground for your livestock, they had to live up in the mountains and the hills. They failed to take responsibility for what God had given them. And so years later, we read here in chapter 18, that the, the tribe of Dan is going to send out five scouts. And these five scouts are going to look for a new place to settle and to call home. They come to a place to the place of Ephraim, and, they, and as these scouts are looking for a new land, they meet Micah, and they stay with Micah. And they find out that Micah has a Levite who's living with them, and so they are curious. Look what they say in verse 3 of chapter 18. They say to the, to the Levite, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business? And, and he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He's hired me, and I've become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. So these scouts from the tribe of Dan find out that Micah's got a false priest, and they're like, We want to get in on that action. We want, we want to know if we're being blessed by God. They're essentially doing the same thing that Micah had done. They're trying to live how they want but they're still looking for God's approval. And so they they say to Jonathan the Levite, tell us, is God with us or are we going to prosper? Now he tells them, yeah, go in peace. The Lord's watching over you. Everything you do is going to work out. Now listen, I I think Jonathan's corrupt. I don't think we can trust him. Just because Jonathan says they have God's blessing, I don't think that they do. So we read in chapter 18, the scouts continue in their journey. They come to the isolated region of Lashish. and, and And it looks like the spot for them. It's far in the far northern end of the promised land. It's far away from the place that God had originally given them to live. And the scouts go back and they report to the rest of the tribe, we think we found the spot. Look what they say in verse 8. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtol, their brothers said to them, what do you report? And they said, arise, let us go up and against them. For we have seen the land and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter in to possess the land. As soon as you go, we will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. And they tell the rest of the people, look, we found a spot. It's spacious. There's great resources. The people there are defenseless. They're not going to see it coming. Yeah, there's Canaanites there, but we'll drive them out. They lack any kind of good defense. They're so isolated. Nobody's going to come to help them. And the other scouts and the scouts tell the others, God really has given it into our hands. Now, they, they don't know that. They don't know that God has given it into, them hand, into their hands. They might be going off of Jonathan's blessing, but his blessing is corrupt. And, and let's be honest. Even though the scouts tell the rest of the people, look, this is a good place. God's with us. He's going to give it to us. I don't actually think they care a rip about God's approval. At this point in the story and in the scene that Judges has set for us, they've already decided what they want. They want this land with or without God. And they're just doing what seems right in their own eyes. And they're seeking to justify their actions by saying, well, I'm sure God, God's with us. He'll, he'll give us the land. And so they, they're going to go mount a military attack. Now you think for a minute, if you're going to bother doing all of this and, and get the 600 uh, 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 soldiers together to go take this land up in Lashish, 
why not just take the original land that God had given them, right? Two things. Number one, the place where they're going is going to be a lot easier militarily to attack and, over, and overcome. To take the land that they were originally allotted by God is going to be a lot of work. They failed one time to drive them out. They don't want to even want to try again. But additionally, this new place they're going, they think is even better. It's got abundant resources. It's spacious. Everything we'll ever want is there. It's easier and it's better in their mind. And so even God, even though God told them to settle here, they say, we're going to go up there. So they gather 600 men. They go capture the land. Now, what's interesting, Judges 18 says that on their way, they stop back at Micah's. They've been so impressed with Micah's little false worship and the, and the Levite and all the elements that they decide they want it for themselves. And so what better way to establish a new life in a new land than with a new religion? And so they go and they steal all of Micah's shrine and his false idols. And as they're stealing it all, the Levite priest is like, what are you doing? And they say to him in verse 19, Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us. Be to us a father and a priest. It is better for you to be the priest in the house. Is it better for you to be the priest in the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved images and went along with the people. So this Levite sees the shrine being ransacked, he says, what are you doing? And they're like, we're going to start a new life. Why don't you come with us? And Jonathan couldn't be happier. This is a promotion for him. Instead of being a priest to one man, he now gets to be the priest to a whole tribe of Israel. And so they leave the city. And as they're leaving, Micah realizes what's happened. And Micah chases after them because they're stealing all of his stuff and stealing his priest. He says to them in verse 23, they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he, Micah, said, You take my gods that I made and the priests and go away. And what have I left? Why then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard amongst us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. Do you see the scene? Do you see how absurd this is? Micah goes out with a group of people to stop the tribe of Dan from stealing all of his stuff. He's yelling at them, saying, come back, what are you doing? And Dan turns around and they say, you better shut up. We're not doing anything wrong. What's your problem? Like, the tribe of Dan is so caught up in doing what they want, they don't even realize that, that what they're doing is wrong. Micah, on his part, realizes he's outmatched, and so he just hangs his head and turns and walks back. People of Dan are so selfish and so blinded, they don't even see what they're doing as being wrong. Micah, on the other hand, had put all of his hope in this false religion, all of his hope in this token Levite priest, and what good has it done him? Everything was stolen right out from under him. When he really needed it, those little graven images did him no good. Guys, anything that you worship other than the living God can all be taken away. And if you put romantic love in the center of your life and the approval and the affection of a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, if you put good looks in the center of your life, if God for you becomes wealth or worldly success, any and all of that can be stolen away in a moment. 
And yet I read this story and I think maybe this was God's mercy. Maybe this was God's mercy on taking all of this away from Micah. And maybe Micah, with his false idols removed, maybe his faith was able to be restored. We don't know. But the tribe of Dan, they go on with their 600 troops and their new priest and their new religion. And they ambush Lashish. They burn down the city. Because it's isolated, no one comes to defend them. They rebuild the city. They settle there. They set up a shrine. They set up all their false elements of worship. And the chapter ends in verse 31 on this sad note. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made. As long as the house of God was at Shiloh. The author of Judges is reminding us they were supposed to worship at the tabernacle in Shiloh with all those sacrifices and festivals and the high priest and all those elements of worship that we talked about. That's where they were supposed to worship. But they continued to worship the carved image that Micah had made. See, God had given them a right way to worship. He had given them priests and sacrifices and festivals and, and beautiful elements. But they are so far away from where they're supposed to be. They are so isolated and so cut off from the rest of Israel that they no longer have access. And they don't want access because now they are free. Now they are free to live how they want, to do whatever is right in their own eyes. And they would rather have Jonathan as their priest and have their false idols and live at the farthest northern edge of the promised land, cut off from everybody else because guess what? No accountability. Do what they want. Making their own way. Taking what they want. Now, now, what's kind of sad and frustrating is that from a worldly perspective, it seems like the tribe of Dan is successful, right? They establish a life for themselves. They want God's blessing, they just find a priest that's going to give it to them. They want new land to settle in, they go and take it. They want their own priest and their own religion, they make it happen. They follow their own desires, they force their own way in life, they take what they want, they find a new place to live, they establish their own religion. And it seems all seems right to them, but it's not to God. And along the way, they act like they want God's blessing, but I don't think they do. Because they've chosen to live far away from the true worship. Far away from God's people. And yet in their selfishness, in their disobedience, in their false worship, we say, but, but they got away with it. Right? They got away with it. God, why would you let that happen? Well, note this. Generations later, God would send in the nation of Assyria to conquer his people, his unfaithful people. And the Assyrians came from the north. And I believe that the first tribe that they conquered were those Danites, living in that area where they had thought they were so safe and so comfortable. And their actions eventually would come up with them, catch up with them. And so let me remind you of this. Don't get discouraged. When you see people prosper in this life, making their own way, and seeming to get away with it, know that their actions will always catch up with them. And, and not only should we not get discouraged or frustrated by people who seem to turn from God and, and live successfully anyway, let's not be tempted, right? Let's not allow their sinful decisions and sinful lifestyle to tempt us and think, well, it's working for them, maybe it'll work for me. The call is to trust the Lord. To trust the Lord with your heart, with your obedience, and with the portion He has given you. He's allotted to us each a portion in His kingdom. Don't try to make your own way because it seems easier or seems better. Don't, don't give in to trying to, to get something that doesn't belong to you, to take the blessing of somebody else. 
Friends, I know the temptations of selling out in the workplace, looking for a promotion in the world, thinking that will give you the security that you need. I know the temptations of those telling those little white lies because it seems like the easier path. And once you go down that path of deceit, it's very hard to turn back from it. I know what it is to see the the pleasures and the ways of the world and to be lured into them. But let's hold on to the Lord. Hold on to the portion that we have been given. Hold on to the elements of, of worship and obedience and the standards of holiness. Let's not make our own way in life and do what seems right to us. Let's walk in the Lord's way. Psalm 16 says this, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Each and every one of us who call Jesus Lord and Savior have a beautiful inheritance. We have a lot that has been given to us, a chosen portion. And, and what is our chosen portion? It's the Lord. We have all that we could ever long for. We have God Himself. He has given Himself to us in Christ. He has filled us with His Holy Spirit. He has said, you have my love, my eternal grace, my eternal favor, abundant life. We have all that we could need. And yet we're tempted and we're enticed to make our own way, to take what doesn't belong to us. God, give us grace. Give us grace to keep our eyes and our hearts set on Him. Psalm 37 says it so beautifully. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, right? Don't get all stirred up and worried when you see people in the world walking away from the Lord and being envious of them. Verse 2 says, For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Instead, our call is to trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Be still before the Lord. Wait for Him. Delight yourself in Him. Commit your way to Him. We're called to dwell in the land. That means to dwell within God's reign and rule in His kingdom. Not do what's right in our own eyes. Not to be enticed. You know what Micah like his biggest problem was. You know what I believe the tribe of Dan's biggest problem was? Yes, it was that they turned their hearts away from the God. Yes, it was they did what was right in their own eyes. But ultimately, their biggest downfall was not worshiping the right thing in the right way. See, what we worship, what we center our lives on is crucial to our actions, our decisions, our feelings, our attitudes, our thoughts. Everything in life begins with what you center your heart on. And Micah turned his heart away from the one true God. The tribe of Dan turned their heart away from true worship. They were supposed to center their worship on the tabernacle. They were supposed to participate in the nation of Israel and the festivals and the sacrifices of atonement and the sacrifices of worship. They were supposed to submit themselves to the Levites, not hire them for their own purposes. And just as their worship was supposed to be centered on the tabernacle, that tabernacle looked forward, looked ahead to the living tabernacle. To the Son of God who would come and be the presence of God on earth. And that is where our worship is supposed to be centered. That is, that is who we are supposed to set our heart on and set our mind on is the true living tabernacle. The Son of God that came and dwelt on earth, that lived for us, died for us, and rose again. And just as they should have turned away from those graven images, 
just as they should have, have, have not given in to those carved idols, they should have turned to the sacrifices at the temple. The sacrifices on the altar. So we need to turn our attention, turn our heart, turn our very life to the sacrifice, the sacrifice, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, given Himself for us. And so we're going to now celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because we have a problem. We have the same problem Israel had. We want to do what's right in our own eyes. And we try to make our own religion. We try to make our own way. We try to set up our own standard, thinking that that God will have to bless us if we do it. And friends, you can't try harder. You can't be more disciplined. You can't just make better lists. You need to confess your sin. Remember the cross. Come to the Savior that rescues you from doing what's right in your own eyes and says it's by grace.